All right, good morning, everyone. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Gospel of Luke chapter 16. If you keep up with the local news, you know that on November 3rd, the uh, person responsible for collecting taxes in the township of White uh, was arrested and placed in jail for an elaborate uh, tax fraud scheme that dated back to 2013. She was put in jail for a complicated scheme that aimed to aggrandize her own life. And I don't, I don't know about you, but when I read about these things, the thought in the back of the mind has to be this can be kept under wraps. So the total amount stolen was $75,000. Such behavior is not new. Thankfully, at the federal level, there's no fraud. <laughs> An employee becomes enamored with the idea of a little bit more. Crafts a scheme to defraud the employer of their resources, thinking that life gets better. I have uh, two friends. One, uh, within the last 24 months, was defrauded twice of upwards of $60,000 each time. I have a family member that was defrauded of between two hundred and $300,000. That kind of stuff shakes you. It says to you, you know what, I am going to have a problem trusting people. But I'm not going to have a problem trusting God. Here's the thought that emerges out of this context of corruption. The thought that emerges is, it amazes me how thoughtful and strategic people can be about bad behavior. About how much time people can put in to getting things that don't belong to them. It, it always it fascinates me. This lady, the tax collector in White Township, had to think through all the different ways that she would change books for different townships and, and, and kind of Ponzi scheme, allow it to look like the money's there when it really isn't. It's really in her bank account paying for her new car or her new house or whatever it might be. That's the way the thinking goes. But it is the amount of strategic thought and intention that captures one's imagination. I'm going to read this text from Luke chapter 16 for you. And I want you to think about that fact and see how Jesus uses that tendency as an illustration that applies to our life as the church. Jesus also told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking away my job. That's not familiar, like complaining that he's gotten caught. Interesting. He says, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And the first one said, 900 gallons of olive oil. He replied, and the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. 
and so on. And the, the, the implication of the story is that this happened on a repeated basis amongst all the accounts that the manager was in charge of. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. I want to work our way through this text. First, I want to help you to understand who the text is directed to. Okay, there's a, a broader context to work. It's going to come up in chapter 16. I believe it's in verse 15 or 14. It's going to indicate that the Pharisees are in context. If you go back to chapter 15 and verse 1, you find that the Pharisees are part of the audience. And at the beginning of chapter 16 or verse 1, you find that the disciples are involved in these discussions. So there's, there's this kind of a broad set of people listening to this particular account. So what is it? It is a parable. It is, it is a story told to clarify eternal truth. Okay, so Jesus is going to take an earthly story and through it he's going to communicate a, an eternal or heavenly truth. The truth that will assist you in your Christian walk, which should cause you to sit back and say, that's strange. Right, because what about this story is redeemable? And we'll come to that in just a few minutes. So it's the story of a wealthy landowner, a farmer, and his manager. All right, so the man is wealthy. He owns a number of farms, presumably. He has a number of managers that work for him. And one of the managers, he begins to hear that his behavior seems a little strange. He's driving a really nice new camel. And we're wondering how he could afford that. His clothing is kind of ticked up and he's a little more stylish than he used to be and so that it begins to raise questions about the work ethic of this manager so the story tells us that he is called to account and the idea is your books are going to be audited we're going to check into what you've been doing by looking at the records that you possess fortunately nobody destroyed the documents so they're still available and can be evaluated. And so as this man begins to contemplate somebody looking into the details of his life, he knows I'm in, I'm in big trouble. It causes him to move into a sense of dread and fear. And he says to himself in verse 3, what shall I do now? My master is going to evaluate the books. And when he's done, the certain end of that evaluation will be the termination of my job. I'm done. I'm finished. But it's one of those accounts where the manager is called to account. It, it's like the owner says to him, in a week, we're going to evaluate the books. You and I are going to sit down. So what does he do for the seven days in between? What he does is he goes through his, oh, crap moment. I'm caught. And in the midst of that moment, a light bulb goes on. A thought about how he can protect himself by using for personal advantage his current situation. That's the story. And so as he, he, he thinks about, what can I do? And here are the thoughts that run through his mind. He thinks about digging ditches. He looks at his body and says, uh, I've accumulated some nice desk muscles, but I'm no longer capable of digging. And so he has first a physical objection to the first thought. Second thought that comes to mind is, if I'm utterly broke, I can at least beg. But because of his pride, he's too ashamed to do that. So he's got a psychological objection. So there's a physical thought. I'll go into hard physical labor. Can't do that. 
I'll think about begging, but that psychologically is devastating to him. It's interesting, isn't it? That the path of sinful choices was not psychologically devastating. But the consequences of the sin was. And so the text indicates in a, in a fascinating Greek word, I know what I'll do. It's, it, the idea is that the light bulb goes on or there is a flash of genius. He, he sees a way to scheme his way out of what he schemed his way into. And so he, he draws up a, a strategy in duress, a burst of daylight. I'll use my current position to provide for my future. And this is what verse 4 is saying. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will, and you can insert, be obligated to welcome me into their homes. I am going to use my master's resources for this week to buy provision for my future. Now, you got to say this. That's ingenious. It's wicked. It's evil. It's scheming. But it is ingenious at the same time. It is very thoughtful and very intentional. It is a well-planned story. So he goes through it, and then verse 8 comes along. He's called in for the day of accountability. That's implied in verse 8. And the master, here's what the text says, the master commended or praised him. And that's the, that's the bite of this story. That's the part of it that says, what? Why would Jesus use a story like this to talk about something positive? What, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect, but you have to focus on what the master is going to say. He commends the dishonest, dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And, and the idea is not necessarily deviantly, but he acted shrewdly or in a very um, wise fashion. He understood his circumstance. He concocted a plan that would work and executed the plan. And so provided for himself in the future at the expense of his boss. And the boss looks at him in the meeting and says, you rascal. In the seven days that I gave you, you defrauded me and protected yourself. And he commends him, not for the immoral immorality of the behavior, he commends him for the ingeniousness of the behavior. For how he got out of that circumstance something for personal benefit. I thought to myself of this guy's wife, the farmer's wife, probably telling him not to trust him and him having to go home and face that. I know that from personal experience. So what's the interpretation of the story? How, how is it that Jesus takes that twisted account and challenges the heart of his disciples with it. And at the same time, in a backhanded way, exposes the Pharisees for who they really are. That's the question I want you to think about this morning. So first, let's look at the positive application of this story. By this parable, what is it that Jesus is commending or encouraging for his people? What is it? And I think the answer to that question is this. Jesus is encouraging his people to be thoughtful, to, make it, to make, take initiative, to plan out effective Christian living. It's not to show us how to live in the business realm morally. It's to challenge us about being thoughtful about advancing the cause that God has called us to. 
with an overriding application that's going to move very strongly towards our understanding of how we deal with our possessions. Because ultimately, that's what the story is about, right? It's about finances being used in a bad way and in a good way. So let's look first at the main point. The broad observation is this. People are more devoted and intentional and strategic about selfish and temporary pursuits than are the people of God. And that is a very subtle, if you will, stinging indictment of the church. Look at what it says in verse 8. Jesus says, The people of this world are more shrewd, more intentional, more strategic, more thoughtful in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, which is an inevitable outcome, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what's the first kind of focal point? The first focal point is to call the church to be devoted, to be thoughtful, to be strategic, to take initiative in the execution of our Christian life. This idea that we live without drive and without motivation, without intention. Jesus is saying to the church, it shouldn't be that way. The task before us is far too important to muddle through life without a plan, without a purpose that God has given to us. Here's what I want to encourage us as a church to do in this new year. Let's reverse the natural tendency towards lethargy. Right? We, we love the benefits of exercise, but we are so lazy and lethargic, right? We look at someone who's fit and we think, oh, that's what I'd like to be like. But if you're like me, I have to kind of beg myself to get out of the house and go for the walk, get in the weight room, do a little exercise. You know, I love the result. I want it, but I fail to take the initiative to do it. That's why we talk about New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, we, we love the goal, the picture, the thoughts, but very seldom does it become for us individually the reality. So first thing I want to do is just this. Mow the grass of your Christian life on a regular basis. If you mow your yard once a year, you will have on your hands a disaster. But you can always say, hey, I mowed the grass. But mowing grass requires what? It requires repetition and maintenance and feed to get the look that the neighbor has, right? And that's the irritation. How do I get it to look like that? Well, are you willing to put in the resources that it takes to get to that goal? Christian living is much like this. I don't get over my sinful tendencies overnight in one decision. It takes repeated crucifying of myself, putting to death bad tendencies, and intentionally incorporating into my life habits and characteristics that look more and more like Jesus. And so as you, as you look at this text, the first thing I just want you to do is this. I just want you to take the broad observation. The sons of darkness are more thoughtful about their sin than the children of God are about advancing their character to be like Christ and to make a difference in their world. And I think just very simply we just say it shouldn't be that way. We have such a, 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 a beautiful life that God has called us to live and such an incredible purpose that God has called us to pursue that we should be more passionate about doing good than wicked people are about doing evil. 
Okay, so I want you to just ask yourself the question. It's, it's one thing for me to sit back and say, um, I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I, I can sit back and say all of that. Is there any difference between that and that poinsettia? Has it ever told a lie? Has it ever committed adultery? Has it ever looked at the poinsettia next to it and said, I want to look like that? Okay. The answer is no. Can, I want to challenge you to this. Many times as Christians, we slip into a default mode that is really like putting the car of our life in neutral. And we take credit for what we don't do, thinking that God, that is what God has called us to. This text aims to challenge that kind of thinking. While that manager shrewdly and falsely used his opportunity, at least he did something. Do you see? We shouldn't look at him and criticize his behavior. We know it's wrong. We should look at our own lives and compare our initiative in good things, in advancing the kingdom and making Christ known. We should compare that to the initiative of the guy that's cheating on his wife or stealing from his boss and say it shouldn't be this way. The children of God should be known for a strategic, intelligent, well-thought-out plan for life. That we want to do something. We want to make a difference. We don't want to be tantamount to a poinsettia that doesn't break the Ten Commandments but is no less righteous because of that. So we got to get away from thinking that righteousness is made up of avoiding sin. Righteousness is made up of doing good. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4 says, let him that stole steal no more. Yes, but instead let him labor with his hands so that he may have to give to the one in need. Do you see? It's not just about stopping bad behavior. It's about intentionally and energetically pursuing a path that leads to a transformed life. So that we're not sidelined people. We're not like people in the stands at the Eagles game this afternoon cheering them on and frustrated when they don't do this and that. No, we're on the field. And we're making a difference. And we can honestly say, this is my team. The church of Christ is my team. It's the people that God has called me to associate with and advance his kingdom with. And so we should be able to look at the behavior and say, yes, that's bad. But we ought also to look and say, that's ingenious. And my life doesn't have that characteristic. I want to challenge you to wake up a little bit in the new year. Come out of the slumber and become a Christian who's actually making a difference. So, now here's what the text does. It calls us to a certain kind of lifestyle and now, and this is, was not the intention of my sermon today, but it's become kind of at the core of it. it it's, it's a call to look at the initiative of evil workers. Emulate the initiative while shunning the evil, and then he's going to point you in a specific direction that fascinatingly has to do with the use of resources in the advancement of the kingdom. That's where the story goes. So, in verse 9... Jesus is going to draw this next directive. It's, it's, it's a bit of an imperative, if you will. And I'll state the imperative, then I'll unpack it from the verse. Here it is. The call is to use temporary resources to influence eternal outcomes. This is hard for the church to make the connection. Okay? That there is an eternal 
consequence of temporal choices. How I use God-given resources, which is to me, my time, my talents, and my treasure. I got three. We all have the same resources. We have them in varying levels. Okay, when I think of talent, I don't think of myself first. Okay, I'm not the first thought that comes to mind. There are a whole lot of people I think about when I think about talent. Okay, but we all have something. We all have some resource that we can strategically and intentionally unleash to make a difference in people's lives. This text is going to focus on the area of resources financially, which all of us have some of. We have varying amounts, but we all have been given by God resources to effect change in his kingdom. So the call is use temporary resources to influence eternal outcomes. Now I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 9. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you, it's, it's the idea that sometimes in the King James was truly, truly, which sounds redundant, and it is because it aims to, to give emphasis. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Now he is drawing directly from the story, but he's talking about an honest Based on integrity, use of resources. Take what you have. Don't defraud others to benefit your own life, but become generous with what you have. And I want you to notice the way he says it. This text just kind of steps me back. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. That's interesting, isn't it? Because at first when you read that, what are you thinking? That sounds kind of selfish, right? But I want you to take into account what the rest of the verse says. Use worldly wealth. Use your resources to bring people into your sphere of influence. Who is he talking to? The disciples who make up the early church. Use your resources to see people come into the family of God. So that when it is gone, and notice, your separation from your temporary resources is guaranteed. Okay? You will not take anything with you at death. Nothing. And so that kind of, what is Jesus saying? One day, everything you have, every opportunity, every resource, all the time, all the talent, all the treasure that is in front of you right now, one day will be gone. And that should, that should do for you what it did for the shrewd manager. When he realized he was caught, he decided to do something. What he did was bad, but at least he did something. And you got to say, you rascal. But may it be true of us that we take our resources and we invest them so that, notice what the end of the verse says. And remember, the manager's motivation was, I'm going to give money to Ryan Duvenek. I'm going I'm to do him a solid so when I get fired, I can go to Ryan and Ellen with my wife and say, got an extra bedroom? And Ryan's going to say, you did me good, yes. Okay? That's the way the illustration works. That's what the manager did. What do you think it means when Jesus says, use your resources to influence people so that when you get to heaven, they will welcome you? I don't have a lot of options for interpreting that. All I can tell you is this. There seems to be an investment of resources into the lives of people who come to personal faith in Christ, 
pass on before you. And when you get there, they welcome you. Now that to me is a thought that is stunning. Think about your life. Think about your use of resources. Think about a life that is is magnetic, attractive, because it is generous. And people are drawn into that realm of that relationship. And they come to hear about and know about a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And their life is forever changed. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Heaven will be a richer experience for those who have poured out their resources for the benefit of others. And here's, 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 I often think of this, when someone like uh, Betty Frazier passed away who had such an impact on people that she never understood. Okay, here's what I always thought, only heaven will tell. In other words, if you pour your resources into eternal things, they will be there in the future which would cause all waste of resources to be shameful. This to me is one of the most amazing promises. Those that have been been influenced by the gifts that the chapel at Warren Valley has given, lives that have been changed, you, the chapel, will be welcomed by them because your life made a difference in theirs. And that difference exists when all of your wealth is gone. Here's an observation I've made. I've made the observation that I've never been in a hospital by the bed of someone who's dying with piles of cash stacked around the person. I've never seen it. And I'm pretty sure I never will. But I have been in hospital rooms where people are passing. And all the people, because the only thing that lasts beyond this life is the person sitting beside you or the person at your dinner table. And what this text is saying is don't waste the opportunity that God has given you to invest your life, your resources into the lives of those around you, at work, in your community, in your church family. Be an intentional church so that when the end comes, I can say I am looking forward to meeting and seeing so-and-so. Obviously, Christ is all in all. But there is something that he promotes here that I think is striking and life-changing. Verses 8, 8b through 9. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal, eternal dwellings. And then he says this. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Every parent knows this. As your kids are growing up, you give them various levels of responsibility, right? And when they show that they're responsible, you give them more and more freedom. Some kids complain, why don't you give me as much freedom as you give to Johnny? Because I can't trust you. And I can trust Johnny, okay? This text is saying there is, in the kingdom of God, at times or on a somewhat regular basis, there is this acknowledgement that those that can be trusted with more are blessed with more. It's not because they're giving that they're blessed. It's that there is a trustworthiness to be generous with the resources to advance the kingdom and not to lavish things upon oneself. So the thrust is, 
Thirdly, evaluate your relationship to your resources. Okay, so I, I think about the, the challenge of the text that the sons of men are more thoughtful about their sinfulness than the righteous are about righteousness. Let that settle in. Okay? Shouldn't be that way, so what do I do? I need to evaluate my relationship to my resources. In application, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to return to the theme of our relationship with money. So in verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust to you true riches? That is, things of eternal value. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And I think Jesus is giving to us a warning. I think the warning is something like this. What you do with a little, you will do with a lot. Okay, I want you to think about that. Because here's what many of us as Christians think. What we think is, when I have a stronger paycheck, and when I have more time, and when I have more resources, I'll devote that to good things. And Jesus is saying, not necessarily. The principle that Jesus is going to advance is, look at the way you're using your resources now, and you know exactly how you're going to use your resources in the future. Okay? Just mark that down. That's why I say to parents, when your kids start working, teach them what it is to give a portion of everything they get to God. My mom did with, that with me as a young child. I came home from the farm. I think my pay was $1.90 an hour. And my mom would say, okay, you can have 10%, and 10% you're going to give to the church, and the rest is going to the bank. Well, what about that 10% to the church part? Can I have that too? All right, what was she doing? She was instilling in me that you don't have to have a lot to make a difference. And this text, I think, goes straight at that. We can talk about what we would do if. That is all in the realm of hypothetical. This is a challenge, I think, for we have a number of college students that are home. I see you guys sitting here. And the thought when I was in college was, I am so busy. I can't wait to get out of college so I can start helping people. The truth is this. In every setting I'm in in my life, I have the privilege and opportunity to take my resources, whether they're large or meager, to distribute them to make a difference in the lives of people around me. So I'm going to challenge you as you look into this new year. Don't look at what you don't have. Look at what God has brought into your life and ask yourself, am I in the use of my time, talents, and treasure making a difference? Am I sending people ahead into the kingdom of God so that when I get to the end of my life, I don't get there with regret? I don't get there simply having a bank account, having made no difference? No, this text says, loosen your grip on those things. Begin to invest, not give, invest in the work of the kingdom of God. And watch what he does. Jesus is clear. The one who can be trusted with a little will be trusted with a lot. And the one who is trustworthy with temporal things that you will be separated from will also in some way in the future be trusted with greater responsibility. That's what the text says. It's an astonishing thought. Our decisions today affect eternity. 
And then verse 13 is a text that I think sounds a warning about this idea of how we use our resources and how we use the opportunities that God has given us. Verse 13, he says, no one can serve two masters. And this, this kind of jumps out as a clarion call. It is very easy to become a slave to your paycheck. It is very easy to become a slave to your personal goals and desires and your retirement. Okay, and I, that's actually in the, in, on my horizon now, okay? I actually... I actually can see that and actually think about it, okay? Because I'm 58 now. All right, so reality is kind of... In the past, they just had it so far down the road. And I'm like, that's like really close. I can feel it breathing down my neck. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. And I want you to notice how strong these words are. These are absolute night and day, black and white contrast. Either you will. Now, there are some of you that are thinking, I'm an exception. Okay? You may be an exception, but you're not exceptional. This is true for all of us. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and temporary things. Notice... Notice what Jesus is saying. He does not bring relationships into this context. Because relationships are eternal things. So I can't love enough. But I can give too little. This is a a text that specifically talks about devotion, loyalty, or commitment. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of doing some weddings. I've had the privilege of standing here... You get the, the best seat in the house watching the bride come down the aisle, watching the interaction of that moment, which is precious and rich. What is said after a man and a woman are given to one another is categoric. I have never given people vows to repeat that are contingent or hypothetical, ever. They are always love or hate. They are always 100% black and white. I give myself to you alone as long as we both shall live. So help me God. Right, that's the nature of that kind of commitment. If there is any thought on the part of the groom or the bride... To think, I'm not absolutely 100% sure. I say to them, do not go through with this. Unless you are 100% devoted, do not do it. Why? Because that competing desire will destroy the relationship that matters most in your life. It always does. And that's the, the manner of speak that Jesus is using here. If a, if a man tolerates affection for another woman while married, he is destroying his relationship with his wife. And here's what Jesus is saying. If while being a blood-bought child of God's, you harbor deep affection for money, you can't love God, you will end up despising him because he stands between you and what at that time matters most. And folks, I just want to say this. We all wrestle with this. Okay, this is mowing grass. 
This requires repeatedly revisiting giving goals and personal goals about saving and how our resources are being used. It requires a perpetual reassessment. And that's why we need to come back to this occasionally and talk about our relationship to these things to be sure that we're, we're reassessing our priorities because the shrewd manager, man, he was messed up, but he was very intelligent and wise about what he had to do. Though evil, God gives us a chance to be wise and intelligent with the possessions that he allows us to have in our lives. One writer looking at this text about divided loyalty saying you can't serve God and mammon made this observation. He said you can't ride two horses without incurring serious personal damage. And the same is true of our relationship to God and our relationship to our resources. I can't be equally loyal to both. I must give God preeminence. I think it's why Paul in 1 Timothy says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, warn those who are rich, which I, it, it just simply means to have a little more than what you need. The idea isn't the uber rich, the uber wealthy billionaires that we attack in our country. It's not that. It's not that. It's those who have more than they need, who could make a difference in someone's life, but refuse to do so. Warn them not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but to be generous. Folks, here's the truth. The way you and I fight against the tendency to be greedy, if we can admit that together, the tendency to want more than we have, the way you fight that and resist that is by committing yourself to a biblical pattern of generosity. Make it a habit of your life to look at your resources, time, talent, and treasure, and give some of that to God. Don't wait till you have enough. You already do have enough to make a difference in people's lives. So get rid of the excuses and begin to ask God how he, your life can be used to make a dramatic difference in the lives of those around you. Remember that the intrusion of temporary pursuits damages our capacity for and the enjoyment of greater things. Folks, any competing desire always destroys your ultimate desire. And that's the thing you need to remember. It's true in marriage. It's true in your relationship to God and resources. If you let your pursuit of resources become more important to you than your pursuit of God, you damage your relationship with God in a serious way. And so the text comes with a, with a warning in it. You can't serve God and mammon. Now remember I told you the audience in the text is the disciples who presumably are very poor. And yet Jesus, at feeding of the 5,000, says to them, what do you got? And he's going to use it to make a difference. But in context, you have the Pharisees who think that the fact that they're rich is proof of what? God's love. Okay, meaning if those poor suckers were just a little wiser and a little more devoted to God, then they would be where I am. That's how the Pharisees thought. They looked at those that had little at the poor and had no breaking of heart for them whatsoever. None. And they looked at the fact that they had something as if it was an affirmation of God's love. Jesus is going to move in the exact opposite direction in this text. He says to them, you cannot serve God and money. And he, he, he's got a bullseye on the Pharisees that are listening here. Verse 14. 
Here's the response. This will help you. If your response is anything like this, if my response is anything like this, and I, I hope you don't look at the Pharisees' response and say, I can't believe they would think like that. Okay? The Pharisees who loved money. So can I ask you to ask yourself an honest question? Do you love money? You find yourself looking at your statements that come from retirement plans and you like seeing it all line up and everything's kind of pointing in a good direction. Do you love that? It's hard to be honest and answer that question. But I think I can be honest. There are times that I find myself loving that thought of security, the provision of what could be, to the point that I pursue it in a way that damages my walk with God. I am capable of that. Jesus says to those who love money, when they heard this, they were, it's a fascinating statement, they were sneering at Jesus. They were turning up the nose and mocking such a call to generosity. Because in their calculus, the, the poor were undeserving of what they had. They had worked hard. They had gotten it. It was theirs. It wasn't God's. And that's the fatal flaw in their thinking. They think that what they have is what they earned, and therefore it is a blessing from God for their life personally, not to be used to benefit others. Jesus responds and says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. It's all what he's saying, a charade. You look the part, but it ends there. You're good actors. Can I say this? There are times that we as Christians can be good actors. But what people see and the reality that lies beneath are not the same. This text calls us and challenges us. He says, you are the one who justifies yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So you've got to say to yourself, is there any way in which I am valuing the things that people value, meaning the world? And sometimes the answer has to be yes, yes. Sometimes I have a longing for things that are not righteous, that are not good, that are not beneficial, that aren't helpful to others. And I've got to confess that to God. When that tendency is overwhelming, when that tendency is controlling, when it is pathological, the question has to be asked, is there a relationship with God? Do you see? And I think that's where Jesus is going. From 14 to 15, act as a, as a warning. Your relationship with money or resources exposes your relationship with God. If I have to have and love and adore and treasure more than God, money, it tells me something about my relationship with God. There's something out of sync, out of whack. How do you fight the pull of temporary things? How do you maximize your impact? And I think here's the simple answer. Regular, strategic generosity breaks the corrupting influence of material things. The problem is not resources, but selfless, a selfless and thoughtless use of them. And this calls 
text calls us to be strategic, to be generous, to be intentional in the use of our time, talents, and treasure while we are fulfilling the purposes that God has given to us as his children. He gave us those resources for a purpose, and he wants us to maximize the use of them to make a difference in the kingdom. Because to whom much is given, much is required. I thought about our church family, and I thought about the uh, giving in December for Christmas needs, various needs within our church family. And I, I am blessed to be part of a church like this. I think over $7,000 has been given to help with needy families within our church and community. And that wasn't with any begging at all. It was just simply saying, here's a need. And people in this church have responded in a dramatic way and are helping us to meet the needs of a number of different folks. Uh, we were able, uh, for the ladies of the Hubbing Home, to make a contribution to helping with what they're doing and some, some meeting some of the needs of the ladies within the home, able to meet the needs of specific people within our community. Folks, that's what we get to do when generosity is present. The only way the church, the chapel, could reach out and make a difference is because people made it possible. And so as we open up our lives and as we become generous with the resources that God has given us and as we pour those resources into meeting real needs within our community, it, it turns on a magnet. People become attracted to a group of people that think that others matter more than themselves. And I believe at the heart of this text is a shrewd man who was all about himself and what we really need to do is raise up an army of people who are shrewd, wise, strategic, and intentional who will be committed to meeting the needs of others so that that picture fades away in light of the better option. People who are devoted, people who are committed, strategic, intentional, really thinking through their life and the use of their time, thinking about their retirement differently than that's my time. No, it's God's time. And if he allows me to live, then I ought to take that opportunity to maximize impact in his kingdom for his glory. So read the story, and hopefully there's part of you that says, that's a little weird. But then you'll dig in just a little bit deeper and see that it shouldn't be true that the sons of darkness are braver and stronger than the sons and daughters of light. We, above all people, should be motivated by a deep, uh, outrageous love and generosity for people around us. And at the end of this, I, I think this just ties this text together. If you go back into Luke chapter 15, you have the stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, right? And Jesus told those parables to the Pharisees who were present in this context, okay? And, and, and the, the, the thrust of the parable is when someone is lost, you completely change your strategy for the day and direct it towards rescue. That's what matters, right? That's, the, that's what this text turns on. Those that know the love of God cannot watch someone struggling without moving into action. Why? Because they bear the DNA of their Heavenly Father. They can't turn away with their time, talents, and treasure. They are motivated to turn, sometimes hyper-motivated. Sometimes people give more than they need to give in a circumstance or more than they're capable of giving. And God uses that and blesses that. Why didn't the Pharisees have a heart to give? Because they had never received the love that matters most. So at the end of it, what does it do? It comes down to, a, to, to, to at the very basic level, to what is the basic 
strongest driving force in your life. For, for the Pharisees, you know what it was? A little bit more. A little bit more. And a pervasive unhappiness. For Jesus and his followers, joy in rescue. Right? Because that's what chapter 15 is all about. She found the coin and she threw a party. The shepherd finds the sheep and he throws a party. And the rebel son comes home and the father says, we had to rejoice. And when you know that kind of love that is, it, it, it emerges from your heart, often snuffed out by material things, but it is emerging in the heart of every believer. You begin to let that flow. Let that unleash your checkbook. Let that unleash your time. Let that unleash your talents. In service to the purpose of God in the church, we will become a change agent in this community for the glory of God. My prayer for this year is God help us to become more strategic, more intentional, more purposeful in the things that you have called us to do. And let it all be driven by a desire to take the love of God that is known in our hearts to others who one day will be there when we get there. And that to me is a gorgeous, beautiful, motivating thought. So here's my challenge. Mow the grass of your heart. Some of your yards aren't looking real good. <laughs> okay. And I, I got to do it too. I thought of this this morning as I prayed for this sermon. I thought, God, my heart is so prone to wander. It is so prone to go back to me and mine, us and ours. But don't let me go there. Because if I do, I waste my life. And when my affections compete, I end up hating God. And if you're a Christian, that's an intolerable thought. So I challenge you, take the text and ask yourself, am I being intentional, purposeful about advancing the cause of God through the resources that he's given me in this year to come? Will you make that decision? If you've never trusted Christ, here's what I want to say to you. Put your checkbook away. Put your wallet away. God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. He wants to change you by a gift of grace that you can never earn, that you can never buy, that you do not deserve but desperately need. And that's free. So don't misunderstand. I'm talking to believers that we should be more devoted to that. And if that message is attractive, you come to know the love that changes our hearts and causes us to give and love and serve in strategic ways. May God help us this year. Father, as we conclude this year, uh, 24 hours plus away from a new year, God, don't let us be the same. Don't let us fade away. Don't let us have a yard spiritually that is unkempt. Help us to mow the grass. Help us to get rid of the weeds. Help us to put in the fertilizer of your love that is needed to grow in a way that is magnetic and attracts a watching world to see what God is doing. So bless us, Lord, for your glory. Bless the chapel at Warren Valley this year. Those here that do not know you, Father, I pray that you would just give them a heart right now to repent of their sin and the trust in a Savior that changes their life. May they know your forgiveness through your shed blood that we sang about this morning, I pray. We ask for all these blessings in the glorious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen.